Chapter Ten of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. On the tenth of May, headquarters were established beyond Williamsburg, and communications were opened between the forces moving by land and water. The following dispatch was then sent by General McClellan to Secretary Stanton. Camp at Ewell's Farm, three miles beyond Williamsburg, May tenth, five a.m. From the information reaching me from every source, I regarded it as certain that the enemy will meet us with all his force on or near the Chickahominy. They can concentrate many more men than I have, and are collecting troops from all quarters, especially well-disciplined troops from the south. Casualties, sickness, garrisons, and guards have much reduced our numbers, and will continue to do so. I shall fight the rebel army with whatever force I may have, but duty requires me to urge that every effort be made to reinforce me, without delay, with all the disposable troops in eastern Virginia, and that we concentrate all our forces, as far as possible, to fight the great battle now impending, and to make it decisive. It is possible that the enemy may abandon Richmond without a serious struggle, but I do not believe he will and it would be unwise to count upon anything but a stubborn and desperate defense, a life-and-death contest. I see no other hope for him than to fight this battle, and we must win it. I shall fight them, whatever their force may be, but I ask for every man that the department can send me. No troops should now be left unemployed. Those who entertain the opinion that the rebels will abandon Richmond without a struggle are, in my judgment, badly advised, and do not comprehend their situation, which is one requiring desperate measures. I beg that the President and Secretary will maturely weigh what I say, and leave nothing undone to comply with my request. If I am not reinforced, it is possible that I will be obliged to fight nearly double my numbers strongly entrenched. Four days later he writes, quote, I will fight the enemy, whatever their force may be, with whatever force I may have, and I believe that we shall beat them, but our triumph should be made decisive and complete. The soldiers of this army love their government, and will fight well in its support. You may rely upon them. They have confidence in me as their general, and in you as their president. Strong reinforcements will at least save the lives of many of them, the greater our force, the more perfect will be our combinations, and the less our loss. For obvious reasons, I beg you to give immediate consideration to this communication, and to inform me fully, at the earliest moment, of your final decision. A few days' rest after the fatigues of the battle, and the glorious news of the evacuation of Norfolk and the total annihilation of the Merrimack, had a wonderful effect upon the spirits of our troops they seemed inspired with new courage and enthusiasm. Hitherto I have said nothing concerning that great bugbear, the Merrimack. Perhaps some of my blue-nose readers are not so well posted with regard to the origin and structure of this formidable rebel battery as the Americans are, and it may be interesting to some to listen to a brief description of it. Quote, Upon the burning and evacuation of the Norfolk Navy Yard, the steam frigate Merrimack was scuttled and sunk by order of Commodore Macaulay. This was one of the most magnificent ships in the American Navy, being rated as a forty-gun frigate of four thousand tons burden. 
She was built in Charlestown, Massachusetts, in 1856, and was considered one of the finest specimens of naval architecture then afloat. She was 281 feet long, 52 feet broad, and drew 23 feet of water. Her engines were of 800 horsepower, driving a two-bladed propeller 14 feet in diameter, and so adjusted as to be raised from the water when the vessel was driven by wind alone. Her armament consisted of 24 9-inch shell guns, 14 8-inch, and two 100-pound pivot guns. This magnificent structure was raised by the rebels and cut down, leaving only the hull which was exceedingly massive and solid. Over this they constructed a sloping shield of railroad iron, firmly plated together and extending two feet under the water. Its appearance was much like the slanting roof of a house set upon a ship's hull, like an extinguisher, the ends of the vessel, fore and aft, projecting a few feet beyond this roof. The gun deck was completely enclosed by this shield, and nothing appeared above it but a short smokestack and two flagstaffs. An eyewitness gives the following account of the first appearance and conflict of the Merrimack. Quote, About noon of Saturday, the 8th of March, 1862, this monster was seen coming around Craney Island from Norfolk, accompanied by two other war vessels, the Jamestown and Yorktown, and quite a little fleet of armed tugs. The Merrimack, with her imposing retinue in train, headed for Newport News, where there was a national garrison, guarded by the sailing frigates the Cumberland, of 1,726 tons, and the Congress, of 1,867 tons burden. The Merrimack steamed majestically along, as if conscious of resistless strength, and as she passed the Congress, discharged a single broadside into the doomed ship, and then, leaving her to the attention of the Jamestown and Yorktown, made directly for the Cumberland. When the Merrimack was within a hundred yards of the two frigates, they both discharged their tremendous broadsides against her armor. The mailed monster quivered a moment under the fearful concussion, but every ball glanced from her sloping shield like the wooden arrows of the Indian from the hide of a crocodile. Her ports were all closed. Not deigning to pay any attention to the fierce but harmless assault of the two frigates, she rushed straight forward upon her prey. The formidable national battery at Newport News opened, with all its immense guns, at point-blank range, and these solid shot and shells also glanced harmlessly away. On rushed the silent Merrimack, with not a soul on board to be seen, true as an arrow, and with all the power of her irresistible weight, plunged headlong with a fearful crash into the side of the helpless frigate. The iron prow of the assailant struck the Cumberland amidships, crushing in her side with a mortal gash. Then, reversing her engine, and not even annoyed by the cannonballs rattling against her impervious mail, she retraced her steps a few rods for another butt. As she drew back, she turned her broadside to the wounded victim, and hurled into her bosom a merciless volley of shot and shells. The ponderous missiles tore through the crowded ship, hurling her massive guns about her decks and scattering mutilated bodies in all directions. Again gathering headway, she crowded on all steam and made another plunge at the Cumberland. She struck directly upon the former wound, and crushed in the whole side of the ship as if it had been a latticework of laths. 
timbers as strong as nature and art could make them, were snapped and crushed like dry twigs. As the sun went down that night over Hampton Roads, every Union heart in the fleet and in the fortress throbbed with despair. There was no gleam of hope. The Merrimack was impervious to balls, and could go where she pleased. In the morning it would be easy work for her to destroy our whole fleet. She could then shell Newport News and Fortress Monroe at her leisure, setting everything combustible in flames, and driving every man from the guns. That morrow! How anxiously we waited for it! How much we feared its results! At sundown there was nothing to dispute the empire of the seas with the Merrimack, and had a land attack been made by Magruder then, God only knows what our fate would have been. All at once a speck of light gleamed on the distant wave. It moved, it came nearer and nearer, and at ten o'clock that night the monitor appeared. When the tale of brick is doubled, Moses comes. I never more firmly believed in special providences than at that hour. Even skeptics were converted, and said, God has sent her. But how insignificant she looked! She was but a speck on the dark blue wave at night, and almost a laughable object by day. The enemy call her a cheese-box on a raft, and the comparison is a good one. End quote. But insignificant as she appeared, she saved the Union fleet, silenced the rebel monster, and eventually caused her to commit suicide. No wonder, then, that the news of the death of this formidable foe caused great rejoicing among the Union troops. Orders were issued to continue the advance up the peninsula, and as the jubilant troops were engaged in striking tents and making the necessary preparations consequent upon a hurried march, the battle-song of the Republic was being sung with enthusiasm throughout the encampment by thousands of manly voices, and every loyal heart seemed inspired by the glorious sentiments which it contained. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grape of wrath is stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Chorus. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening's dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaming lamps. His day is marching on, etc. I have read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. As ye deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on, etc. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on, etc. 
in the beauty of the lilies christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me as he died to make men holy let us die to make men free while god is marching on etc the roads were so indescribably bad at this time that the army could make but little progress i remember it required thirty-six hours for one train to accomplish the distance of five miles however after several days wading through mud and water the troops reached the white house where a portion of the army remained for a time while the advance guards pushed on to the chickahominy river and established headquarters at bottoms bridge its further progress being impeded by the destruction of the bridge by the rebels Quote, the position of the troops were as follows stoneman's advance guard one mile from new bridge franklin's corps three miles from new bridge with porter's corps in advancing distance in its rear sumner's corps on the railroad about three miles from the chickahominy connecting the right with the left keyes's on new kent road near bottoms bridge with Heinzelman's corps at supporting distance in its rear. End quote. The ford was in possession of the Federal troops, and a reconstruction of the bridge was immediately commenced. On the 24th of May, the two following dispatches were received by General McClellan from the President quote, I wish you to move cautiously and safely. You will have command of McDowell precisely as you indicated in your dispatch to us. End quote. Quote, in consequence of General Banks's critical position, I have been compelled to suspend General McDowell's movement to join you. The enemy are making a desperate push upon Harper's Ferry, and we are trying to throw General Fremont's force and part of General McDowell's in their rear. On the 25th, the President also sent the following to McClellan, quote, The enemy is moving north in sufficient force to drive General Banks before him precisely in what force we cannot tell. He is also threatening Leesburg and Geary on the Manassas Gap Railroad from north and south. I think the movement is a general and concerted one, such as would not be if he was acting upon the purpose of a very desperate defense of Richmond. I think the time is near when you must either attack Richmond or give up the job, and come to the defense of Washington. Let me hear from you instantly." End quote to which McClellan replied, quote, Telegram received. Independently of it, the time is very near when I shall attack Richmond. The object of the movement is probably to prevent reinforcements being sent to me. All the information obtained agree in the statement that the mass of the rebel troops are still in the vicinity of Richmond. I have no knowledge of Banks's position and force, nor what there is at Manassas, therefore cannot confirm a definite opinion as to the forces against him i have two corps across chickahominy within six miles of richmond the others on this side at other crossings within same distance and ready to cross when bridges are completed End quote. End of chapter ten